These materials are distributed by DCI Group AZ LLC with the participation of Glassman Enterprise LLC on behalf of SEM Consulting LTD. Additional information is available at the Department of Justice, Washington, D.C. Have you been able to, to track the money? Well, most of what is being stolen is grain. We've identified over 150 discrete incidents of, of theft since the start of, the, of our project. Russia is not only destroying infrastructure and destroying the country of Ukraine. There are government actors involved, but there are also many private actors. And that's one of the things we're deeply concerned about. It's incredibly perverse, but perhaps predictable. What should we take away from this way of waging war? Thank you for joining. My name is Jay Newman, and I'm your host for the Under Money podcast where we discuss the intersection of money, politics, and power, and especially the invisible flows that really guide and control people and events under money. With me today is someone who knows more about how the world works than most people. Jim Glassman, Ambassador Jim Glassman Retired, was the Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs in the George W. Bush administration. He's been a journalist, publisher, and author, he ran the New Republic, the Atlantic Monthly. He's hosted uh, shows on CNN and PBS, and he's written a column for The Washington Post. In addition to his uh, career advising presidents and global communications firms, Ambassador Glassman is on a new mission. He's the chief spokesperson for a new group, the Initiative for the Study of Russian Piracy. We've read a lot about the war in Ukraine, but very little about the assets that are being systematically purloined by Russia. Jim, what is the initiative for the study of Russian piracy? Who started it and what's your mission? Well, Jay, uh, first, thanks for inviting me. Congratulations on Undermoney. And I'm, I'm, great. I'm just delighted to be here to talk about what we're doing at the initiative for the study of Russian piracy. It's a, a group of former government officials like me, uh, trade experts, national security experts, and investigators who are concerned by the immediate and the long-term impacts of Russia's theft of Ukrainian assets. And, and our goal is to track that theft and to help media and other concerned parties tell that story to the world. And Ultimately, uh, frankly, we, we'd like to see sanctions handed down to those involved at all levels of this campaign to rob Ukraine of its valuable resources, to aid in the effort to violate their sovereignty. It hasn't been easy to, to follow exactly what's been going on because uh, the Russians are quite adept at concealing uh, their, their looting. And they've, they've been doing this for years in other places as well. But I think that our investigators have done a pretty good job of tracking what's been going on. And you've seen that some of the results of our work in the work of others, uh, media that have been uh, dis really under uh, disclosing exactly what's been going on. So uh, we hope to engage with uh, government officials as well, and certainly with any stakeholders to make this theft public and to have actions taken to stop what's going on. Jim, how does the how does the theft 
work? What's what's being stolen? Where is it going? And who's benefiting from it? Well, most of what is being stolen is grain. And grain is tremendously important. Ukraine is one of the largest exporters of grain in the world. Their the lack of grain, exported grain, because of the war, is directly affecting many countries, including uh, countries in Africa, where there are impending uh, famines as a result. But the main thing is that the Russians have been using this grain; they're they're selling the grain and they're taking the profits from the grain, and that that helps the war effort. The other thing that they're doing although to a lesser degree and i really i really hope and, and and i i believe that the extent of some of the other things that they've done actually has been diminished as a result of the the light that we have shown and and media have shown on their on what they've been doing so they've also been uh, stealing metals steel from the at least the two plants in Mariupol and uh, of course, those the, at least one of those plants has, was became the focus of a lot of international attention when the the Russians moved into Mariupol. But there's a very large steel plant. There are actually two there, and some of that steel has also been stolen. Very valuable steel. So that's what they're doing, and they're they're using techniques. I mean, one of the techniques that we have identified is called transshipment. Now, I just want to say that transshipment is used widely around the world for for perfectly legitimate purposes. In this case, transshipment is being used to conceal exactly what the Russians have been doing, the looting that they've been doing. And transshipment is very simply refers to moving cargo from uh, point A to point B and then from point C from point B to point C, rather than directly from A to C. And uh, so so there are many cases where um, very large cargo ships, uh, container ships, can't enter smaller ports. And so smaller ships are used, and then they go out to a transshipment point in, in the middle of, uh, in, the, in this case, in the middle of the, the, the Black Sea or surrounding areas, and then that cargo is loaded onto a larger ship. And again, there may not be anything wrong with this in, in many cases, but in the cases that we're talking about, this transshipment is being used for a specific purpose, which is to conceal the nature of the cargo that's being shipped. Yeah, just to go back for a sec, just to understand it. So while while Russia is uh, pummeling and invading Ukraine. There is a separate enterprise, which it sounds like it has to be organized like a real serious business to you know, run trucks and trains and boats uh, to move all this very bulky material. Is that, is that what's happening? I mean, how big is the enterprise? It sounds like there must be thousands of people involved in it. Yes, it is a very large and complex enterprise. For example, one of the things that the Russians have been doing is uh, advertising on websites to get uh, truckers to pick up some of this grain and move it to either to Russia or to Crimea, where it can then be put on ships. But yes, uh, there, are, there, there, there are trucks involved. There are uh, people, there are Russians who go to the, 
who go to the, the, the farms to get the grain. Uh, there are ships involved. There are, in some cases, trains involved. Yes, it's a very complex operation. And I would also say there are government actors involved, but there are also many private actors. And that's one of the things we're deeply concerned about. Jim, without revealing uh, sources and methods, because I know you've got, you're trying to get information in a, in essentially in a war zone. How do you guys figure it out? How do you figure out what's going on and what's being picked up and what's being stolen and, and how it's moving? Well, we do have spotters on the ground, but most of the information that we have developed or that our very smart investigators have developed is uh, public information. For example, uh, ships are required to carry transponders so you know where they are all the time. Now, what we found in this, these looting operations is that the ships that are involved turn their transponders off and we know where they, tra- where they turn them off, where they turn them back on. And those are indications of how this looting is working. But a lot of the information is out there in the public sector. It's not, it's not easy to put it all together. It requires hours and hours of work and following a ship as it moves across the Black Sea or, or into Crimea and from Crimea to Syria or to, many, to Lebanon and, and other places where the grain is taken. But yes, it can be found publicly. So you can watch, you can essentially watch the grain being loaded. You can, you can tell which ships it's being loaded onto. Then the ships may disappear for a while and then they reappear uh, when the transponders go back on again. Where's the, where's the grain going? Who are, who's the, who's the offtake for this? Right. So, so the grain, a lot of the grain is going to Turkey. It's going to Syria. It's going to Lebanon. In many cases, it's going into Russia itself. But ultimately, the grain gets sold. And that money, we believe, is going into Russian pockets. And we're talking about a lot of grain here. So we've managed to identify a million tons of grain that has been shipped through this method using 150 separate shipping uh, incidents that we have identified. Now, most likely there's more than that, but these are the ones that we've identified. We can tell you who the ships, you know, what the ships are, uh, who owns the ships, the exact routes that the ships have taken. And as I said earlier, a lot of this is now coming out in public, not just through our reports, but through reports in other publications. The Wall Street Journal, for example, on December 1st, ran a, a piece with a headline. I'm looking at it right now. Ships linked to Russia's biggest grain exporter moves stolen Ukrainian cargo. And I'm happy to say that the, the initiative for the study of, of uh, Russian piracy was credited in this story. But it's quite an extensive story that shows how this was done. As unsurprising as anything that uh, Vladimir Putin does ought to be to anybody, this seems like a uh, a page out of Nazi Germany when the Russians invaded lots of Eastern Europe because they wanted the same thing. They wanted grain. They wanted oil. Is that a fair comparison? It is. And I think that's a story that's been missed. So Ukraine has been called the breadbasket of Europe. It's really, to a great extent, the breadbasket of the entire world. It's the fifth largest exporter of wheat. It's the second largest exporter of corn. In many cases, it competes with Russia in the export business. It, it is absolutely vital 
in supplying uh, you know, life-giving grain to the world. The notion that Vladimir Putin, like uh, Hitler, like Stalin, wanted to get control of Ukraine's uh, grain is not really all that surprising. And it's not just grain. I would, I would also add steel, because there, there is intense competition between Russian steelmakers and uh, Ukrainian steelmakers uh, for exports to Europe. So Ukraine is, a, is, for a country of 40 million, it's really critical in an economic sense. And controlling Ukraine is a very profitable enterprise. So it's not just ideology. It's not just national security. There's a lot of money involved here. And I think that's a story that's really been lost. So just to put a point on it, Russia is not only destroying infrastructure and destroying the country of Ukraine. They're, they're stealing grain. They're selling grain. They're using grain, presumably grain profits, to, to support their war effort. They're stealing steel. I can imagine that the steel is being used to make bullets, which are being recycled to uh, to fight Ukraine. It's um, it's incredibly perverse, uh, but perhaps predictable that all this is happening. How does it how does it fit into uh, the bigger picture? What you know what what should we take away from this way of waging war? I don't think it's something new. I think it's something that hasn't been highlighted enough. So you know we we think. Media seem to think in kind of national security terms, strategic concerns when it comes to security. That makes makes a lot of sense. But, you know, just as in uh, the 19th century and the 18th century, it's not just about that. It's also about gaining control of very valuable assets. And I'll give you another example. It's not it doesn't it's not about grain. It's actually about metals. We have a lot of evidence that the the Russians have been making attempts, and we're not sure whether they've been, they've been successful yet, to steal uh, sophisticated uh, technology from the two steel plants in Mariupol, and then to be able to use that technology to produce semi-finished steel, where there's a lot of competition between Ukraine and Russia, and Russia doesn't have this kind of technology. But this could be worth billions of dollars to the Russians if they're able to secure the technology. So that's also happening here. This really is about a lot more than just Ukrainian, the Ukrainian map. It's about the the assets that Ukraine has. It's the biggest exporter of sunflower oil, for example, It's which is a very, very important, uh, very, very important for for uh, cooking and also as as a fuel in some cases, so it accounts for about half of the world's sunflower oil. It's it's, it, it's an amazing place. The vast majority of Ukraine's territory is agricultural. It has incredibly rich soil, and uh, the Russians want to get a hold of that. And while they're not necessarily, they have not been able so far to conquer very much of Ukraine. They have been able to steal a lot of Ukraine's assets, and uh, we're, we want to shine a, a, a light on that to get them to stop doing it. Speaking of shining a light, you mentioned that uh, you, your investigators think that at least some of the stolen property, grain, um, technology, steel, may be going to Turkey. How, how does that 
work. I mean, I know a lot of people are attempting to break break sanctions or don't uh, abide by sanctions, but Turkey is, an, is a NATO member. Uh, in theory, it's uh, you know an, an ally of the United States. Yeah, Turkey is playing a very complicated game. Maybe it's a double game. Let me, let me bring up something that I think uh, a lot of people may know about, which is that Turkey was uh, played an, uh, an important role in getting the United Nations to establish a humanitarian corridor so that some grain could be shipped out of Ukraine without Russian interference. And the Russians agreed to that. And uh, that was a good thing for Turkey to do. But of course, as there is grain now being shipped out to African countries and Europe and Asia, a lot of it actually is going to China now without interference by the Russians. The, the Russians are meanwhile in another part of the Black Sea to the east, they are stealing grain, as, we, as we've been discussing. And a lot of that grain heads for Turkey. Now, the, the Turks, in, in commenting on this, have said that, hey, uh, as far as we're concerned, this is legal, but it's not. And uh, so they're benefiting from it as well. And I think we need to, our government needs to apply a lot more scrutiny on what the, the, on the assistance that some in Turkey are giving to the Russians right now. But they're playing a double game. Yeah, particularly as we, uh, as the U.S., the United States provides more and more aid to uh, Ukraine and the Europeans provide aid to Ukraine. And at the same time, all these assets are being stolen and sold to prolong the war. It's it's like a, a vicious circle of, of assets being moved and and sold and turned back into a war machine. Who else is, is part of that? I think you mentioned uh, Turkey, but what about other countries in the Middle East, Iran, Syria? Are they part of the same uh, enterprise? Well, we have identified shipments going to Iran. We've identified shipments going to Syria. And uh, so they are definitely part of this. There's no doubt about that. So, Jim, how do we how do we go about stopping this sort of theft? Is there there are, there are various sanctions in place? Are they insufficient? Are they ineffective? How do we how do we put an end to it? Jay, let me just comment on one thing that just had slipped my mind about Syria. The Syrian government actually owns uh, two of the ships that have been bringing grain to Syria. So the Syria Syria is deeply involved in this. Uh, how do we put an end to it? Well, the best way to put an end to it is to put severe sanctions on the participants. And by participants, I mean, for example, the shipping companies that are involved in taking this grain, uh, they're integrally involved in taking this grain from, from Ukraine and shipping it and having it sold by the, by the Russians for the Russian benefit. That shouldn't be too hard to do. And I think, for example, this, this article that came out in the Wall Street Journal on December 1st, provides a, a good blueprint, as does uh, some of the other work that we've done, uh, that our investigators have done that traces the actual ownership of a lot of these ships. And it's not easy. This is not easy to do because you've got lots of lots of shell companies, lots of companies, only small parts of other companies. I mean, you, you know this game very well, Jay. So, uh, but our investigators did a terrific job. And we hope that the U.S. government will, will take some steps. The other thing is that, you know, at some point, and I hope it's soon, 
Ukraine needs to be compensated by Russia for the for the thefts that have been going on. So it's not just the destruction which you had referred to. It's not just the this is a war crime, but it's not just the war crimes that a lot of people have referred to. And these are terrible things that that the Russians are doing. But it's also, you know, a theft of uh, of a sovereign country's assets, and they need to be reimbursed for that. And we're talking about hundreds of millions and billions of dollars that the Russians have have stuck in their pockets that don't belong to them. So what would you recommend the U.S. government do to um, apply pressure and to help ferret out actually who's got who's receiving the money, who's got the money and how uh, Ukraine might recover it? Well, I think this is something that the uh, Treasury Department's uh, OFAC office uh, can do. I mean, the Treasury has an office that does this. That I think they're probably understaffed. There's a lot of sanctions going on around the world. But I would think that they have now been alerted, if they didn't understand it before, to what's going on. And they need to take it very seriously and uh, and get to work on it. So that's something that can happen quite quite rapidly, I think. And, you know, this this is something that I, I, I would certainly, for one, I would certainly like to see the uh, the new Congress focus on and uh, and and hold uh, hold the Russians to account and encourage the administration to take some action. You know, I I, uh, I read the article that you're referring to in which um, your uh, initiative um, was was recognized. It seems you've you've named some names uh, there. You know a lot about the individuals who are involved. Uh, is that part of the oligarch class? Who who are these people? And if you care to name names, feel free. Well, I, I'll, I'll certainly have have no problem with naming uh, the name that the uh, that the Wall Street Journal talked about. And we did we've done a lot of research on this company ourselves. Yeah, there's a Russian businessman named. Uh, Peter Kudikin, uh, who owns uh, the RIF or Rift Trading House, which is the largest uh, grain exporter, largest Russian grain exporter, and a big player in global grain markets. So, you know, it seems to me that uh, that if you're a big player in global grain markets, you shouldn't be involved in this kind of thing. Being involved in it, it potentially puts your the rest of your operation, the legal part of your operation, yes, many of the many of those involved are indeed uh, you can call them Russian oligarchs. But it's uh, it's a good example, I think, of how how uh, individual sanctions can and and should be targeted in addition to broader sanctions. Do you need more action by Congress, or is this something that Treasury could do uh, of its own accord based on existing executive orders? Yes. Uh, no, this is something that Treasury can do of its own accord uh, based on the current current law. Absolutely. But, you know, getting Congress involved, I think, is a very good idea. And uh, especially as we look down the road and we say, you know, Russia, you're not going to be able to get away with this. You're going to have to pay. And uh, and there, I think congressional action may be necessary. But as far as sanctions are concerned, no. The Treasury Department has it within its power. I mean, your point that if uh, if the, the people involved in this are well-known players in the grain markets, um, I'm surprised that we haven't already seized their ships the way we have seized uh, people's yachts. I, I don't know why. What's what's stopping 
governments around the world from doing that? I can't answer that question, except that I think the I, I, I mean, I would think <laughs> the answer is that it's it's been it's been hard to de definitively show what's been going on. I mean, that is not easy. And I really congratulate the journalists who are involved and the you know, our own investigators. It just hasn't been it hasn't been uh, hasn't been easy. We're not even completely sure at what level the ostensible owners of a company like uh, like Riff are operating. You know, whether the whether there are people above them, the real people who are, are who are taking advantage of this situation. I'm just going to speculate here. I think that to uh, be able be able to operate an enterprise like this uh, in a war zone would require real assistance from the Russian army. Uh, and, you know, so it, it's hard to imagine that there isn't some higher level command and control of this this whole business. Yeah, that's right. Jim, you mentioned Peter Kadikin of uh, uh, Linter and TD Riff. Can you tell us more about him and his operation and how important he is in this uh, whole project? Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's. He's very cozy with the with the Putin government. He's uh, turned his skills to laundering resources stolen by uh, stolen from the Ukrainian people. And our investigators believe that he's actually assisting the Russian military operation in more nefarious ways. And he worked his way up the ladder and he uh, ended up with a major stake in banks. He sits on the board of supervisors. Uh, while those institutions were laundering cash and facilitating a, a variety of violations connected to organized crime. And this is, by the way, not unusual. And this is what we, we find when we you know, turn over the rock and see who's been involved in these smuggling operations, smuggling of, of Ukrainian grain. And like many uh, Russian oligarchs, Kodikin has millions in hidden assets, obscured by putting them in the names of his, his wife and his associates. And he, he's built a network of offshore shell companies in famous shelters like Cyprus and the British Virgin Islands and Malta. His wife, by the way, is the daughter of an important political figure in the Rostov region, which is, of course, close to Ukraine. He was trained at the USSR's uh, Academy of Internal Affairs and was implicated in bribery scandals while in office. So he's a he's a big player. And according to our research, between April and September, bulk carriers owned by companies that are controlled by or benefiting Mr. Kadikin de delivered between 58,000 and 98,000 tons of what we believe is illegally exported grain and transferred an additional 64,000 tons to bulk carriers owned by other companies. So this is uh, the kind of person, the kind of company that's involved. Yeah. And when you mentioned the idea that perhaps uh, he's, his businesses are providing uh, assistance or are assisted by the Russian military, it makes, uh, it makes perfect sense because the logistics of moving product like this, whether it's steel or whether it's grain, uh, would seem to relate, maybe require the protection of the military. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that in that environment, there isn't a very close connection between the war effort uh, and the piracy. Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, at the, the, the beginning of this chain, 
is the theft of the grain from silos and from farms. And that's being affected by the military. And they're the ones who are on the ground. Then it gets loaded onto trucks or onto trains. And then it's, it's taken, in most cases, to the port of Sevastopol in occupied Crimea. And the ships, though, that are involved are owned by private companies or, in some cases, like the Syrian case, owned by uh, government companies. But they're not military ships. So you know an awful lot about um, this whole process. Do you think sanctions can be effective? I do. I think in this case they could be effective because a lot of the companies that are shipping the grain are companies that have other interests. Sanctions could really hurt them. Individuals, for example, you know, sanctions on individuals uh, or sanctions on the company, I think could hurt, could hurt them. So, yes, I do. I'm not a... You know, I'm, I'm a skeptic when it comes to sanctions, to tell you the truth, in a broad sense. But in this case, I think they've worked really well. Have you been able to, to track the money, uh, follow the money uh, from the sale of grain or steel? We have not. That's the part we really don't know about at this point. I mean, we can take pretty good educated guesses, but we have not been able to track it. I mean, what we expect is... The grain is being sold. It ends up helping the Russian war effort. But exactly how that works, where the cash goes, we don't know at this point. Jim, how, how detailed and deep do the sanctions go? So the sanctions, I think, have been effective. You know, the EU has passed eight packages of, of sanctions. U.S. has passed several packages as well. Recently, the U.S. announced new sanctions, including five against five individuals for s- supporting or enabling the theft of Ukraine's grain. So that was important. And uh, the action included the designation of 22 Russian proxy officials, you know, including those who, who, who were involved in the seizure or theft of, of the grain. So that's good. It just doesn't... It just doesn't cast a wide enough net at this point. And a lot of it is focused on officials rather than these private sector individuals who obviously have deep connections with the Russian government that have been helping. Jim, it sounds like this this whole process of stealing grain and moving it and transshipping it is very sophisticated. How, isn't, isn't there a way to identify uh, what's Ukrainian and what's not and, and use that as a tool to stop the theft? Well, that's a great question, Jay, but the answer is no. It's not possible to separate the Ukrainian grain from the Russian grain. So Russian grain gets mixed in. And I think it's important to understand that there are no sanctions against the sale of Russian grain. So, you know, Russian grain is considered something that's important to keep people alive. And so, so the international community is, has allowed Russia to sell its own grain, has not allowed Russia to sell Ukrainian grain, which is what it's doing. So on some of these ships during the transshipment process, it's mixing Russian grain with Ukrainian grain and the Russian grain is is okay, the Ukrainian grain is not, but it's very difficult for anybody inspecting it to know what the difference is. Jim, not to be ghoulish about this, but 
What are the odds that some of this uh, Ukrainian grain ends up in cupcakes in, uh, on, on uh, dinner tables in the U.S. and in Europe? Well, I don't think it's likely to end up in the United States because the U.S. is the next net exporter of grain itself. But, you know, certainly, certainly it's the idea that it would end up in Europe, I think, is quite possible, uh, maybe even likely. And certainly in Africa and Asia and other parts of the world, yes. That certainly can happen. And, you know, what it means is that people are unwittingly helping this this war effort through the theft of assets that don't belong to the Russians. And you can say, in a sense, you know, just simply by Russia, buying Russian grain, you're helping the war effort. But this is, I would think, is worse. You're, you're taking something that doesn't belong to the Russians who have stolen it. And they're, in a way, sort of fenced it through you. It seems like you've got really, really detailed information about how the theft operates. Can you tell us a bit about um, specific transactions? Yeah. So, as I said, we, we've identified over 150 discrete incidents of, of theft since the start of, the, of our project. And many of them involved an act of transshipment somewhere along the way. So our investor, our investigators have, have reviewed the available records and the geolocation data, the transponder data, and other location data for every ship that's involved in transshipment, and it gives us an insight into how the companies managed to to hide the fact they may be selling grain that was apparently taken out of Ukraine. So one example is a ship called the Amacris Two which received some attention, media attention, in July after a sister ship, the Amacris 3, was seized by Ukrainian authorities. And it provides a, a good example of how this laundering of Ukrainian grain through transshipments uh, works. So the Amacris 2 arrived at the Kavkaz South Anchorage in the Kerch Strait. That area has received some attention because that's where that, that long bridge is that was attacked the, you know, the bridge that, that Putin built and was so proud of. But at any rate, the Kavkaz South Anchorage, which is a very active part of the Kerch Strait, the Macris 2 arrives there on June the 7th, and two days later, another bulk carrier owned and managed by the same company, Petra 2, was positioned next to the Macris 2 for a ship-to-ship -ship transfer. And over the course of the next several days, Petra 2 assisted in the transfer of grain from smaller cargo ships onto the Amacris 2. And most of those ships, the other ones, came from Russia, from a grain terminal in, in Azov. And others, however, came from Ukraine. So you can see the mixing of the grain from these two different sources. One is free of sanctions, that is to say, Russian grain. And the other is absolutely illegal to do. You can't steal... Ukrainian grain and ship it anywhere. That's against the law, against the international law. The ships that are coming from Ukrainian ports are trying to hide the fact they're taking Ukrainian grain. And usually what they do is they disable their transponders. It's called the AIS system, the automatic information system. So they can't be tracked entering or leaving these sanctioned ports. International Maritime Organization Regulation Number 19 requires that ships keep these transponders on at all times, unless they're specifically allowed to turn them off by an international agreement. So 
Why is the ship turning a transponder off? Well, because there's one anybody to know that it's been involved in the, these kinds of activities. So during the time that Petra 2 was assisting Macris 2, they received seven loads that are shipped from Russia and two from Ukraine. And after the two bulk carriers separated, the Macris 2 received another six shipments, two out of Russia, four more from Ukraine. And our investigators estimate that by the time the Macris 2 left the strait on July 6th, it was carrying about 35,000 tons of grain, apparently taken from Ukraine, mixed with 40,000 tons of grain shipped from the Russian port of Azov. To sum up, I mean, this particular instance of transshipment is particularly interesting, not just for the large quantity of Ukrainian grain that appeared to be transferring, but because it went dark. It turned off its AIS transponder yes. on July 22nd as it approached the Straits of Hormuz, uh, which are attached to the, the Persian Gulf. And Macris II later reappeared in the Persian Gulf on September 5th with its AIS information indicating that it had unloaded its cargo. And even though the ship's transponder listed its destination as Iraq, there's no record that the ship ever landed there. And based on prior trips by other sh ships in that fleet and the long period it apparently took to deliver the cargo, our investigators believed it is more likely that the Macris II delivered the cargo at Bandar Imam Khomeini, which is in Iran. And there is some evidence that there is a kind of a, a drones for grain deal going on between the Russians and the Iranians. We don't have absolute proof of that. But as we know, the Russians have been using Iranian drones and clearly they're being paid for it but for, in some way. And the grain that's going into Iran is could be the way that they're being paid for it. Well, that makes perfect sense. It's uh, and it's perfect under money, right? Grain for drones, grain for oil, oil for bullets. Do you have any any sense of the the scale? Like, what what is this illegal grain trade and seal trade worth? Well, you know, we think that it's in the billions of dollars. Now, I, I guess we have identified something, maybe a little bit out of date, but I think it's on, on the order of about three hundred million dollars worth of, of grain that we've identified that has been stolen. But could be, I mean, there's no doubt that it's a lot more than that. I mean, we've done a really good job, our investigators, in tracking these ships, but we haven't tracked every single one of them. And um, so it is a multi-billion dollar theft. There's no doubt about that. Jim, what's next for the initiative for the study of Russian piracy? Well, the next the next step is after we've recorded exactly what's been going on is to encourage our government and other governments to take steps to put an end to it. Now, I actually think that the exposure that's already occurred through the media, and there has been terrific reporting that's been done by the Associated Press and the Wall Street Journal and and many others. It's really remarkable what's happened is you know, putting putting pressure. There's no doubt about it uh, on the Russians. They've been able to do this with impunity until fairly recently. You know, it, it is time for governments to step up and do something about it. And I think that the main thing that needs to be done is, as I said earlier, sanctions, individual sanctions against institutions and companies like these uh, 
really can have a, a major impact, and especially, as I said, in cases where you have companies that are operating legitimately in, in, uh, in other spheres. I mean, they're not going to want to have those operations interrupted because of sanctions, operations that are far more questionable. How much more could the U.S. government do in terms of imposing sanctions? Well, this country and other countries can take actions against individuals, especially the oligarchs who are facilitating and funding this, this theft. And that, you know, look, it, not only is that going to hurt the oligarchs themselves, but it could further erode support from the oligarchs and others for the, for the war within Russia. Uh, we could identify and seize assets of these individuals, including what we believe to be high-dollar property in Manhattan, in Miami, and elsewhere. And it's also likely that these individuals have high-value assets like uh, private jets and yachts and even bank accounts here in the United States. So there's a lot that can be done, but is not being done now. And I don't think it's not being done for any, uh, for, you know, reasons of, for nefarious reasons or, 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 or sloth or anything like that. It's just that, you know, the sanctions people are pretty, pretty overworked at this point. We're happy to provide information to them, which we hope will result in, uh, in action, in action taken against uh, the perpetrators. Jim, this, this is an extraordinary endeavor, uh, and I think it's really, really important to let people know what's going on. It's uh, as Ukraine, as the war in Ukraine has kind of faded from the front pages. Uh, it's perhaps uh, this an understand deeper understanding of uh, how Ukraine is being pillaged uh, by Russia will encourage more uh, anger and involvement by the U.S. Congress and by the European parliaments. So. Congrats to you. Fantastic work. Sadly, it's classic undermoney. Thank yep. you for thank you for your time. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Jay. Really appreciate it. 